This is Kevin Van Hensenrick, and you're listening to WithoutYourHead.com. And if you lift the lid of the basket, you die. Welcome to the Station of Decapitation Without Your Head. I'm Nasty Neal, and I'm joined by Gabe Bartolos, FX artist and director of St. Bernard, coming this May from Severn Films. It's very cool to have you here. Thanks for having me, Neil. Glad to be here. Yeah, and I not because not just because you're here, but I post this on my Facebook. This movie, I recommend it to all my, all my friends who love crazy, weird, underground movies. I said, this must-see. And I don't even know how you can like explain like the premise of the movie, but can you try to explain the premise of St. Bernard? Well, I can. I'd be more interested to hear you give a two-liner. <laughs> well, I, I would just say anyone who likes uh, a bizarre <laughs> underground movie, you must see it. Yeah, well, that works, right? Um, uh, if I had to be pinned down to uh, a descriptive narrative <clears throat> synopsis, I think, and maybe you'll agree with me, it could be boiled down to, it's about a, a musical conductor mm-hmm. played by the actor Jay Dugray. And throughout the length of the feature-length film, we watch him descend into madness. And so that narrative could be the tree trunk as a metaphor, and then all the branches of a tree could be the little surrealistic events and scenarios that branch off that direct narrative to kind of um, hopefully make for a a jam-packed visual cinematic palette. (laughs) Definitely. Yeah. I I could not agree more. I was watching it and it was like mesmerizer stuck to the movie. By the trailer, I thought I would dig it. It seemed like a movie I would like, but sometimes a trailer can let you down, but uh, this, uh, it really lived up to my expectations. Well, that's good. You know, I I feel the same about trailers. I feel when people do a misrepresentative trailer, they really set the viewer up to not only be disappointed, but sometimes get angry because you've been hustled, you know, and um, there's so many different people out there with so many different tastes. I think just put out a film, put out a trailer that's representative of the film, especially in its tone. And, and that audience will respond to it. If all you're going to do is get a, a pissed off audience, if they come to, you know, if, if you look at the St. Bernard trailer and it comes out at like Kramer versus Kramer, you're going to be like, huh? <laughs> so it's better to reflect what, what you got. Yeah, I agree hundred percent. So when did uh, St. Bernard, like, uh, when did it come about the, the, the idea for it? Mm, it was a few years ago. I, had you know i've always been interested in um dream logic and was reading a, a lot about uh mental dysfunction and at the same time like we all would see 
you know, when you're at a red light, a crazy guy on the street, you know, screaming at nothing and, you know, would read that people like that completely believe what they're arguing with or screaming about. They're in another world and it's as real to them as this conversation is to you and I. And I also, I saw parallels between that behavior and our dreams where what I really enjoy about dreams is that within the context of a dream, very strange things happen sometimes, you know, in a fun, weird dream, but in the moment of the dream, you completely believe that it's real and give into it. Now, sometimes that's discounting, let's say, lucid dreaming where you're aware it's a dream. But if you're really into dream and believing what's happening, such strange things happen. They're threaded together, and it's only when you come out of the dream that you kind of, when, in your waking world, you laugh and you go, what the heck was that, you know? Mm-hmm. So I thought it'd be interesting to take these interests and um, – build a story off of it that allowed me to kind of communicate in a less literal form and really exploit the medium of visual cinema to talk in metaphors, to talk in parallels, to sometimes be subliminal, sometimes be obvious, um, but, but really embrace everything that that visual medium of cinema allows for and really try to create the feeling that in the movie, it all, even if it's not fully understood at the moment, feels like it's the right pedigree, that the right time and space for it. But it's only when you come out of the theater, the spell kind of lifts and you laugh and you go, what the heck was that? You know? <laughs> and um, uh, that became really the technical challenge for me to weave a narrative that could then hold together with the dream logic during the film, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think something like that would be hard to pull off for a feature movie, you know, like, uh, as opposed to like a short since it, mm-hmm. since it isn't necessarily realistic. And what did the, uh, what was the script like? Since the movie really is so visual. Um, you know, it's, it's very specific and true to what we shot. It's, um, it's one of the most, I enjoy the writing aspect and it's really like a solving a Rubik's cube for me because there are scenes that'll come to me that I know will advance the narrative, but they could be really abstract. So I have to figure out how can it position itself where it should be um, strategically for the momentum of the film and convey what I want without being too obvious or boring. You know, there's a lot of great movies out there and sometimes I think they're too literal and they hand it to us too much. I, I'm not sure if <clears throat> um, other films give the film-going audience enough credit that, especially mm-hmm. horror and, and genre sci-fi, is that we really like to use our intellect and coming to our own conclusions is sometimes even more empowering. And some things sh- should be uh, interpreted individually. You know, if if I dare say, if a, if a film comes off as a piece of art, it should be no different than a sculpture or a painting that three different people viewing it in the exact same surroundings under the same conditions are going to have three different interpretations of it. That's pretty cool. So um, I don't see any different in, in a film going like that, at least in parts. I think it engages a different part of, of the brain 
to to get into it. Um, so uh, yeah, that 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 kind of storytelling is very challenging, and, and I really enjoy that aspect of it. Yeah, I think that's a more of a modern movie thing where they really like hit you over the head of what the movie's supposed to mean. I think a lot of like seventies movies were more you know, left it up to you to decide, you know, left it up to the audience to decide what, what everything was, everything was supposed to mean. I agree. And, and maybe you're right about it being more a modern phenomenon. You know, last year I rewatched the French connection, Friedkin's great film. And I forgot that it had this real nebulous ending where they turned the corner and the gunshot is heard and you don't know, did he get the criminal? Did he kill himself? Did he accidentally, you know, who got shot? What happened? And it goes fades to black. So this entire film uh, journey doesn't give it to you at the end. <laughs> right. You know, I, I, I've seen the film many times over the years, but never, never held that as a strong point. Rewatching, I thought, how funny, like what a bold thing to do, you know? Uh-huh. I guess this would be more of a question for like the cast, but when they read the, uh, when they read the script, when they read the script, did they like uh, get an idea of what the movie actually was going to be about? Look like, I think so. Like. I mean, I, I don't try and be coy or, or abstract with them about it. I, I write it as specific as I can. You know, you, you discover a burnt out bus, you climb on the bus, you're careful not to step on carnage or, you know, things you, you appear at the, at the back, there's a curtain. So like Jay reading, he understands what's going to be happening when that scene comes up. Um, Sometimes uh, there's some chuckling or like, well, what does this mean? And, um, uh, you know, uh, Warwick Davis, for example, would, I'm lucky enough to consider him a friend. So he would say, okay, I I got the written word. I could do this. I'm I'm on board. What does it mean? Who am I? You know, and it was actually maybe a year or six months after we filmed, we saw each other again. And he said, you know, what, what do I represent in the film. So he wanted to scratch the surface a little deeper to know, I get what I'm doing. You know, I'm on this log pile, you know, um, and, and I'm like, well, to me, you're a guardian angel that guardian angels appear through the film at different times. You're one because the Bernard character is in peril. He needs help. You give him time. Thus, the images of Father Time. So you kind of give him time on his quest, whether he's getting away from someone or whatever he's doing at that point. He's like, ah, okay, I I gotcha. And he realizes, well, that wasn't fully important for him to know to convincingly portray that character. He was just more interested in the big picture of like, what are you up to, Gabe? (laughs) What kind of what's what's happening on the sub level that uh, that you know would be interesting so yeah 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 so i you you said he's your friend with is that from uh working on leprechaun correct we worked um uh on many leprechauns together and from the first one uh we got along great i had instant respect for him he's is you know boundless talent Mm -hmm. and um uh just a really good guy with a huge sense of humor and the two times I worked with him on Skin Deep and St. Bernard, where, where it was a project I scripted and put together, what I found that even elevated his craft more was, you know, there's a level of absurdism I like in my cinema. Mm-hmm. And giving 
that, that stuff is all the trickier where if it's not pulled off properly, it falls flat or it's just kind of obnoxious. Um, Warwick would take the dialogue that was specifically written by me to have an absurdist bravado to it, you know, no apology, and legitimized it so amazingly that the joke and the humor elevated many levels because you have this class actor giving a class performance of this insane dialogue and completely making it believe it so you just kind of laugh and shake your head. You know what I mean? It, it, it mm -hmm. doesn't wink at you at all, and then you hit another layer of humor. Mm -hmm. What uh, For me, the movie kind of feels like a sort of like a racer head where I, I would like to watch it again and try to figure out what uh, what everything means. And it kind of looks like uh, old Gilliam movies. What, what are some of your inspirations? Mm, well, Eraserhead is an excellent film. It's... Um, uh, in praise of Eraserhead, it's one of the few films that, going back to my interest in dreams, really has captured somehow that lightning in a bottle of a nightmare, the distant mm -hmm. dogs barking, the hissing, the sound design is, to me, front and center important as the visuals. They really, um, really captured that, and that, that's intriguing to me. So, yeah, Eraserhead's really excellent for that kind of mood you know there's uh, a hungarian director bella tar who's super interesting very different films they're not surrealist they're more brutal slices of life in a very downtrodden scenarios but the sheer um kind of the weird he does films that have very very long takes almost entire rolls of 35 millimeter which i think clock in at nine or 11 minutes mm -hmm. and um you know weird things happen when you don't cut the camera it keeps going and you start to hit literally different planes of consciousness in yourself while you're watching it he's really figured that out and has created some super interesting cinematic spells um if you're interested in i would i would start with a film called damnation and um his last film was something called the turin horse uh is maybe the <laughs> slowest most glacier pace may not be the best introduction but damnation is a beautiful film and um just a rough ride but creates creates a mood that um especially in today's fast edit world mm -hmm. it it's punctuated even more by the very slow pace of it it's very interesting you know yeah. and then uh big fan of andre tarkovsky uh mm. he also does slower pace films which is funny because saint bernard is so rapid fire and dense <laughs> right. but um tarkovsky especially the film stalker is you know should be taught at every school and celebrated for its textures those textures in the agriculture and the architecture around in the film is something that definitely influenced me and let me know like yeah you really it's it's a painting it's a frame let's fill it with really cool stuff mm -hmm. now do you, do you yourself have any uh bizarre dreams uh, i do i mm -hmm. keep dream journals i have for years um, you know, sometimes they're nonsensical. Sometimes they're just straight ahead and, and matter of fact. Other times they're in between where it's, uh, you know, a pairing of something that seems really random 
with some, you know, real life considerations. Uh, uh-huh. I love them. I, I, uh, I, I think I'm lucky when I get a weird dream. I, I chuckle and I, I always write them down. I think it's fun to keep track because they tend to just blow away in the ether if you don't hang on to them. Yeah. Yeah. And that is something like, I Where do I like they all go? Wouldn't it be right. cool if there was some place where everyone's dreams when you're sitting on the edge of your bed, scratching your nuts in the morning, those <laughs> dreams dissolve away. They go into some wind stream and they all collect kind of like all the plastic bottles out in the ocean. It'd be uh, cool if there's all these dream particles building up in some like giant, big, like an Island somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I like it. That's a movie right there. So yeah, <laughs> but I always uh, find that fascinating too, when a movie can capture that. And I think it's hard to pull off because there's a lot of movies that try that don't really get it. But, uh, uh honestly, I thought, uh, great Bernard really, uh, captured that, that dreamlike, uh, feel to it. And you can kind of, I don't want to say you zone out while you're watching because you're paying attention to it, but you do. It's a different feeling than if you're watching a traditional movie. Yeah, it does kind of create a spell. And I think that that was important from how the scenes are bridged and transition to one another. And, you know, when you're doing something that's has surrealistic scenes, it's very important that they're not random, that they they have to point to one another. Otherwise, other things I've seen that try and be surrealistic are just lazy. They just throw together stuff and go, ah, yeah, yeah, it's surreal. You know, throw a fish through the screen. <laughs> and you're like, that that doesn't work. It has to be very carefully calculated so that even if you don't know what it means, it has to feel right and it has to inform different parts of the film. And that's when it gets really exciting. You start to build a narrative through sometimes these abstractions. So it's still moving the momentum forward. Even if you're lulled into a weird hypnotic state, you're, you're getting this information and it's guiding you toward some kind of conclusion. Mm-hmm. Since a movie is, uh, I don't, it's definitely not for everybody, I would say. Was it hard to find people, not only to get involved to be in it, but uh, to get it released? Um, you know, I was lucky in that I screened it a couple times as I was shooting and assembling it. In 2013, mm-hmm. I was invited to Spain and 2014 to Brazil, and I had the film cut, but I hadn't done the post yet. So I agreed to screen it out of competition and it was really neat to watch it with a public. I knew I, I still had a huge journey ahead of me in sound design and music, but seeing it with a public, you really can't hide. It's interesting. You could see whether the more thrilling moments connect or if the humor hits, you know? And um, I officially finished the film in 2017 and took it to the Boston Underground Film Festival, where... Um, it went over really great. They, they booked it a great time, and it got some really nice attention. And from there, things went quickly where Severin Entertainment, run by David Gregory, had made the best offer to put it out. And I've long admired his label and um, was really excited to be on there. So, uh, no, to, a short answer was no, it wasn't difficult. And mm. I was really excited where it landed. And that I actually had the opportunity to pick and choose, which yeah. sometimes is rare when you're making um, a film that's way off the beaten path. Yeah, that's very funny. You mentioned Boston Underground Film Festival because I just missed the movie then because I was at 2018, 2019 just recently, and I did a bunch of interviews. 2017 though, uh, uh, the day I was supposed to go, I got very sick, and I uh, people know I'd 
I was in the hospital for for months. I had a uh, part of my colon removed, and it was a bad time. But uh, so I missed the Saint Bernard just mm-hmm. barely. At the fed. Well, I'm glad you're better, and at I least um, <laughs> it's you know finding a nice home, which is always cool. Mm-hmm. Speaking of dreams, when I was at the hospital, uh, I was on ketamine for a while, and you have very uh, I don't know if you call them dreams, but more probably more hallucinations. But uh, it was very bizarre. If you what is it. ketamine? Uh, it's a pain medication. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also known so as you're a, kind a of awake. Care. It's like a fever dream almost. Yeah, yeah, it's very. And you are. I was aware that I was hallucinating. Like things I was seeing wasn't <laughs> really there, but it was a very bizarre experience. You're like, all right, I got to get something out of this miserable time. <laughs> Give me some trips or something. Right. So there's a. <laughs> I don't want to give too much away the movie, but so. How, 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 when you're filming someone walking down the road, like the freeway with like a severed dog head, like mm-hmm. uh, do you get a lot of people stopping or like what's that experience like? Um, well, I kind of I like um, causing trouble, let's say. So I knew like that scene, I wanted that those shots, you know, a, a lot of what I say is that um, I'm excited if other filmmakers or people who really love cinema say, wait a minute, how did they do that shot? You know, we, we, that couldn't be digital. They couldn't have shut down those entire three freeways in that shot in St. Bernard. How the hell did they do that? So <clears throat> that was a uh, gorilla, gorilla sh- a shoot. And what we did was I picked the busiest day on the busiest freeway which out in california is notoriously the 405 and it blends in with the five and the 118 and it was a monday after easter so i knew it would just be miserable so what we did is the day before um we gathered and with little toy cars we figured out what's going to be the picture car what bernard character has to do to find this head how i'm going to shoot it and I didn't want anyone to get hurt or a pileup. So behind us were four cars, were crew members. And the idea was as we hit the pre-designated mark, everyone started slowing. So people didn't know why. They, just, they didn't know the cars in front of them were part of the film shoot. So you have this chain slowly slowing down till it stopped traffic. I hopped out, placed the head. Slapped on the camera lens. The actor was already in his clothing. He had driven the car, like we did coverage of him leading up to it. And then literally, I began to shoot over his shoulder of him discovering it. What was interesting was there was very little beeping or yelling. Most people just wanted to keep moving. So they were on the right side, trucks and cars pulling past. Every now and then when they got parallel, they saw this guy covered in blood carrying this dog head. You know, like, what the heck? But then they saw me following him down the ramp with the camera. And, you know, we moved very fast, but we we knew the instant the camera was up in my eye, I was like, this is incredible. You just see this infinite sea of traffic and um it it you know it's real you know yeah. it's just this this uh kind of outrageous moment so we shot it we did the coverage we switched lenses we got it all we we calmly got in we went a further down of him crossing in front of other cars and then um luckily uh regrouped at our designated spot and not in jail and um <laughs> 
uh, yeah, led to some really exciting stuff. And, and, you know, it's a perfect question that you're asking. Someone who knows movies would, would know that better than Joe Sixpack to go, wait a minute, how the hell did they do that? You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause like we said, I could see all the cars. I was like, so it's really, they're really there. And I was like, I don't know how they filmed this. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's kind of the mischievous side where I firmly believe, you know, as long as you're not breaking any real laws or hurting anyone, sure. it's, it's cool to, push it a bit and that energy of real life mischief is fun when it it it, it gets you know put to use in a movie <laughs> yeah so uh the, so the money suit i so it was all every pretty much all the visual stuff i liked but uh the money suit was there a two dollar bill on the back i thought i noticed a two dollar bill probably yeah <laughs> <laughs> so <coughs> excuse me so um we started filming 2013 um, how long did it take to to film the whole movie? Uh, it took about over a period of about two years of shooting, and then almost the same of uh, posting it. You know, so uh, you know one of the pluses is the same minuses of doing a film independently. You know, you don't have studio backing; <laughs> you don't set it up and just you know blast right through. Mm-hmm. But at the same time. Um, a lot of the sets are so intensive, it really worked beneficial to build for a few months. Uh, then, like the chief police station set, you know, then shoot mm-hmm. that and allow all those details and nuances to, to inform the storytelling. And then break, you know, the actor might go off and have to do something or the studio gets busy and we go go fully absorbed for three months delivering a makeup effects job. And then on the in-between time, another set like the Uncle Ed set at the end of the film, very elaborate wooden set that he goes to see for the last sequence of the film, you know, that took many months to build. And um, it's really nice when you're not building, looking over your shoulder at the clock, then it becomes Mm -hmm. really art. It's when you have the time, you're just adding and, feeling around as to what feels right and why. And the beautiful thing is we could actually set up the camera and, and build to the, to the shot, you know, see what the lens is going to be and go, Oh, well, let's telescope some wood out of here. So we get this energy. Let's make this piece of wood. That's going to rise up when the water spring and you um, become incredibly efficient through kind of rehearsals at your own pace and building specifically for a shot. I, I really enjoyed that and found myself not frustrated at all by the pace mm-hmm. because it, it became the really bright side of independent filmmaking. It was your own voice shining through and you're building to really, really honor the shots, you know? Mm-hmm. So the, did the movie change at all while you're making it or did it, it really did stick to uh, what you had originally written? miraculously it stayed really close it was uh you know i thought about that a while ago we were someone brought it up they said you know i was reading through the script of saint bernard and it's like right on it i said yeah right i looked at it too i said it's interesting because um with so many scenes that feel like metaphors or abstractions it seems like there'd be a lot of room for improvisation or to go off script if an opportunity arose Mm -hmm. but um once I had worked it out and was comfortable with this as the script and I kind of saw the movie in my head, uh, I didn't feel the need to expand or, or, you know, I, I, I was actually careful not to because 
I felt that the balancing act, those teetering plates of the whole narrative <laughs> was working and it was precarious. I didn't want to push something too far or if something went off in a direction that didn't feel right to this universe, it could jeopardize it. So um, stayed really honest to the script. Mm -hmm. So uh, what was it about Jason Dugray who uh, made him write for Bernard? Um, you know, he had to portray kind of this um, damaged, innocent, sleepwalking character in a sense. And <clears throat> at first blush, that might seem like, ah, cool. You know, a lot of people could sign up for that. But it's a little trickier than one would imagine. And I'd worked with Jay. He had a, a smaller part in my first feature, his brain. And in that, I began to see the nuances of the type of characters he could portray. And I felt that he also takes direction really well, and he began to understand me and the type of cinema I'm interested in making. And um, I think our communication was really good so that he needed very, very little wrangling or pulling in. It was, it was trying to be that he had to be a neutral palette and absorbing this, these scenarios as a blank canvas. If he was anticipating or snarky about it, it would lose the innocence of this guy being subjected to this stuff, which really are manifestations of his trauma. And um, so they have to be, in a sense, surprises to him, which is ironic because they're manifestations of his brain. Mm -hmm. So uh, I guess it's just that he's a really good actor and he was able to find that level and when he needed some help with it, he completely understood as I tried to piece together words to explain what range he should be at in, in experiencing this. And when, when very few times does he, is he not in that, and he's more of like us, the viewer, like mm -hmm. the one time when he arrives at the police station and the door is... Uh, like 18 doorknobs and locks and he gets frustrated and says, what the fuck? <laughs> That's like what any of us as the audience would say and would have said way earlier in the movie. It, it's one of those refreshing moments where I think that are important to have there be suddenly you bond with him again and mm -hmm. the audience isn't an outsider. They connect again with him. So, uh, I, I think he's really good in pulling that off. And, um, He's super patient. He's super, uh, he's just everything you want a good actor to be. He's good in performance and he's good in attitude. He is able to roll with the, all the difficult scenarios, the climbing, the weather, the rain, the, the, all the set pieces that needed physicality to deal through. He was excellent through all of that. Mm -hmm. so, <coughs> excuse me. What was it like uh, filming the parachute scene? Uh, the chickens parachuting was really fun. Yeah. That was one of those things where when I got it in my head, I uh, loved the images so much. I was determined to do it. And that's where shooting this film independently really became an asset because I had to find a parachuting team, a camera team, convince them that I don't belong in an institution, that this is for <laughs> high art, and uh, how do we do it? And the neat thing was when I met aerial photographer 
Joe Jennings, J-E-N-N-I-N-G-S, that's a specialty. He works on um, aerial photography for major motion pictures. And when he, when we got together, he understood, okay, I see your studio makes stuff for big studio films, but what you're doing here is an independent film. And that distinction he thought was really cool. And then when he saw the storyboards and he understood that I was really specific about, again, I want another filmmaker when they see this to laugh at like, oh, it's not just a Hail Mary, throw him out of a plane and we get whatever footage. I want a wide, I want a close-up, I want a reverse, I want an insert. Like, I want it to be like any shot list you would do, but in the most difficult surroundings you could imagine. And I, I, it's almost like a subliminal joke that another filmmaker would go, holy shit, I mean, there's coverage. <laughs> you know, like, how did they do coverage at 9,000 feet? That's insane. So, um, but that is exactly the kind of challenges that Joe Jennings, that got him interested because he's done everything. So suddenly he's like, well, that would be pretty funny for me to point a camera at. He goes, what are you going to do? I said, well, sew many harnesses and we'll attach them to these chickens. And he said, all right, I'm going to set you up with a custom parachute guy. I know we got to make specialty shoots that are the right size and will withstand the incredible air blast that happened up there. So tests happen. And then we went to Paris airfield and, um, over, I think, six jumps over two days, him and a trusted team he put together, uh, each jump focused on getting a specific shot from the storyboards. And uh, it was so interesting because when the footage came back and we did the developing and dailies at Photochem here in Los Angeles, I really realized how good he was because he was up there with a 35 millimeter camera attached to his helmet, you know, falling God knows how fast chasing these chickens and, and the rigs that went with them that every shot he gave me, it wasn't like, ah, I got four frames. I got to barely use. I had such comfort in editing exactly as I wanted the narrative to be that I was like, wow, he's really good at what he does. I could put my shots together just as I envisioned, and I have room on the front and the back of my edits that I'm not forced into, ah, I just got barely enough footage. It's such an extreme moment to put the scene together. And, uh, yeah, it was really cool. It, it, it added, um, definitely it opened the film up to a whole nother aspect that you know is, wow, they're really, I, and like we're talking, it, we, I really know they're doing that. They're really mm -hmm. up there. And um, that makes the description of the scene hopefully even bigger because it, it, it got pulled off. It's not just a written sentence that would be funny at a bar. It's like, mm -hmm. no, they actually shot it, and it's pretty cool. <laughs> mm -hmm. Probably my, uh, I don't know if I could pick a favorite scene, but one of the ones that stands out to me, I'd be a favorite scene, is, uh, is with the van and uh, it's a legless driver, and I won't say everything happens, but it's very uh, gory and graphic, and his re his response to everything that's happening is just, it literally made me laugh. It was yeah. uh, it was tremendous. And so, uh, where did you find, uh, I guess, a guy that's, uh, I assume he has no legs. Yeah, well, both characters don't have legs. Oh, really? Um, I didn't realize that. 
Yeah, the female character, Miss Roadkill, is played by Katie Sullivan, and she's a double amputee. And I'd worked with her in the past, and we got along. And basically, I, in, if you rewatch the film, you'll see that it's all reversed engineered with body doubles and inserts. And uh, it's her 80% of the time. And when you see her bare feet in her weird outfit putting out the pipes and stuff like that, they're inserts. So you're completely massaged into, yeah, whatever. But it's that she has legs. So when she is run over and her legs <laughs> are complete carnage, uh -huh. that is her amputated stumps with silicone prosthetics on. Um, and uh, I don't know how well it comes across, but we're on an asphalt street so that you couldn't do the trick of digging a hole and putting mm. legs in there, you know? Mm. So she has no legs and her legs are destroyed. Um, then the actor, I found him who's driving the van through a friend of a friend and uh, spoke to him about it. And, you know, right up front to both of them, I was letting him know it's going to be one of the roughest scenes in the film from Bloodshed. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want them to be bummed out about it. You know, mm -hmm. I said, this is where I'm going with it, and it's going to be no apology sequence. And they both got it. You know, um, Katie was born without legs. So she wasn't about to have like a Vietnam flashback to her legs being blown up. She thought it was just hilarious. The van driver did lose his legs in an accident, but it was years ago. And as such a strong character completely was able to separate, um, what he was staring at the carnage of the legs didn't apply that to his own psyche at all and loved the gruff attitude. I wrote where, like you said, those comments he says is like completely for the wrong scenario. You yeah, kind of go, awesome. oh my God, that's his response to running a lady over? Like, mm -hmm. what? who is this dude? And then, you know, it all elevates by when he, you know, his comment first is out of place, then he gets out of the van and it's suddenly neutralized because he's missing his legs. Yeah. Then he gets physical with her and then the entire psychotic punchline at the end is miss roadkill don't feel bad for her. she's actually happy that she's one of the roadkill now so uh -huh. um i was conscious that that scene is just mean spirited until like no don't get too mad at gabe because she's happy about it at the end it's kind yeah. of like pulling the rug out to hopefully put a band-aid on the evilness of the scene <laughs> uh -huh. yeah, I, I loved it from start to beginning i don't know what this says about me but it was, it was right up my alley. So, uh, <laughs> That's great. A mutual friend of ours, Kevin Van Hintendrick, wanted me to say hello. He oh, that's great. Right, right, right back to Kevin. That's excellent. Yeah. So, um, how, actually, how did you get involved in, in the Frank Hennenlauter films? Um, it's one of those wonderful scenarios where I was a big fan of Basket Case 1. And... Um, uh, that film just blew me away. It was just so bold and brash, and its raw, independent feel to me was like a banner of its independence. You know, it was just like this major F you to like, yeah, we don't have money, but we have these cool ideas. And it's like, excellent. You know, I totally saw past the minimalism of its finance and just saw this movie with, I dare say, heart and mm -hmm. hilarious 
integrity and just, you know, just crazy. And um, so I was working on a film called Spookies and was thrilled when uh, Frank Henenlotter and producer Edgar Ivins reached out to me. New York City, then, makeup effects community was very small. And um, they knew they were going to be doing brain damage and were just exploring different artists. So I got to meet Frank and Edgar, and we hit it off. And looking back, it's pretty astounding because I was very, very young. But um, to Frank's credit, he he saw that he thought I I could be, you know, um, an advantage to it. Um, and looked past my age, and I had already done a few films. So, uh, and I was just, you know, I was excited that it was Frank because I liked Basket mm-hmm. Case. I knew this was going to be his first 35 millimeter film, and all the ideas he had were exactly up my alley. You know, creating this parasite. There were a lot of gore effects. There were the aging deterioration effects. I was like, man, all this in one film, and. Um, it was great because then I, I could see Frank in action and saw that he was a very funny guy, a very smart guy. And um, it was so cool to be a key part of a film that if I, if I step out of my body, I go, man, I love brain damage. Frank did a, a great film. <laughs> uh-huh. And then I could go, oh, it's so cool to have been involved in that. Yeah. yeah. Did you work on the, I don't know how to explain it, the, the deep throat death scene, I guess you call it? Yeah. Yeah. We made uh, various... Uh, rigid Elmers in different stages. So in the edited version, you see a uh, full version heading toward camera. Uh And I, I I don't think you see the brain removal or the, you know, the shaved down scenes, but now with the unedited sequences out there, there were like three, they look like crotch plates, fiberglass crotch plates with (laughs) basically a full length Elmer, then the three quarters and a half different ones that the actress put in her mouth. We dress blood. And the last bit that I'm pretty sure was edited out until the uncut was I sewed real calf brains to the inside of Elmer's mouth and loaded it in her mouth. The actress took these real (laughs) brains in her mouth. The camera rolled. I withdrew Elmer, pulled him back into fake legs and fake pants. I did. And the brains (laughs) came out of her mouth as she fell out of frame. Um, Yeah, talk about a committed actress. It was really (laughs) nasty, um, but it was the perfect punchline to that sequence. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. So uh, I know Kevin's always been wanting to do a a fourth uh, basket case. I don't know if you'd ever be involved or not, but uh, hopefully that uh, that happens at some point. That'd be cool. I mean, that's always Frank's decision. Um, You know, Kevin's obviously been involved with one, two, and three. I came in Mm -hmm. on part two and three instantly loved kevin he was just great you know almost similar to like bernard kind of going through these weird events that are just happening around him Uh you know he's like uh taking them all in um yeah i you know frank uh makes films at his own pace uh usually when he's ready to that's why they seem to stand the test of time Mm -hmm. uh yeah I, i i think uh if he visit, revisited Basket Case for him, would be really cool. <laughs> uh-huh. So, uh, what, did you go to uh, school to, to, to direct or anything, or did you kind of learn that while you're working with people like Frank Lot or in other movies? Yeah, I, I picked it up as I was going. I've always had an interest in, in cinema. I loved art and science as a kid and loved movies, so I got really interested 
in effects to see how they all came together. And then just being a fan of films, watching all sorts of films, you know, you start to absorb the, the laws of movies, of how things are put together, of acts and structure. And, um, <laughs> and then when you get to make your own film, then you try and break the laws. You go, okay, <laughs> I understand that. Let me try and do something different. Uh, and that, that's just speaking for my own taste. I, I like it when films... <clears throat> excuse me, don't have to follow the exact blueprint that all films do. And, um, you know, we all have such, our thoughts bounce around in such strange ways. You know, sometimes you think of something and you go, how did I get there? And then you retrace, oh, I thought of that. And then they called and that, and they go, that's funny, I got over there. I like the idea of films, at least the films I'm in, making, kind of have that those logic and I don't think it's that abstract I think we do it all the time in our brains so it may be a way that if there is a percentage of people that enjoy the film it may be because it's though it is a surrealistic horror film it's not so different from the way our brains are wired and putting thoughts together you know mm -hmm. so is there a place you can see skin deep in your previous movie Skin Deep's on Amazon. I see it up there popping around. And, um, I'm going to check it out. Yeah, it's it's kicking around on uh, DVD and VHS. It was probably one of the last VHSs issued in uh, 2004. That medium was going away. But, you know, yeah. besides all the resurgences. So, uh, <coughs> yes, it, it is still available. Very cool. Well, I loved St. Bernard. I hope people uh, check it out. So how is it coming out? Is it going to be on uh, video on demand? Is there going to be a DVD, Blu-ray release? Exactly. All three of those. Uh -huh. uh, May 14th, Synapse is putting them out. They've already started the pre-orders at the Synapse um, um, Severin uh, website, Severin Films. And um, they're doing uh, Blu-ray DVD and video on demand, exactly, at the same time, May 14th. Oh, sweet. So, yeah, Basket Case, one of my favorites, too, so check that out and check out all three because you can see some of your uh, your monster work in Part 2 and 3 because Part 2 and 3 are much more freak-heavy than the first movie. Yeah, yeah. I think Frank decided to <laughs> take the, the visual mutation factor and turn it up, which was just fine by me. It was... Uh -huh. um, uh, made me very excited. I have no shortage of <laughs> creature designs in my head. So Frank was probably like, let's have fun and exploit this a little. Very cool. So people check it out. Uh, trust me on this one. Check out St. Bernard. <laughs> I loved it. Excellent. I appreciate being on. It was a lot of fun.
For now.